Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who was once bitten by a radioactive insect and spent three days terrorizing the streets of Manhattan, Mr. Ryan Seaboy! What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? Not bad, man. Not bad. Yeah, that was uh, that was something, dude. That shit was all over the news, dude. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what exactly went down there, how you looked, everything about it. Here's the thing, dude. So shit gets weird down here in Florida. I had my dick in an anthill, and um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of pollution going on. We got some red tide. I got a little bite, and now I am Ryan. <laughs> Ryan, uh, Ryan Siebel. <laughs> Coming to you live. Um, I have moved into a uh, colony. Uh, it is a nudist colony, but, uh, you know, we all uh, work together and uh, bring things, uh, you know, in a pile, kind of centrally located in the middle. Um, so so it's wait, wait, wait. Of- the other people at this nudist colony, yes. are they yes. have they been infected as well, or are you unique in that regard? Well, yes. So it's Florida, so we're all infected by something down here, right? Oh, I mean, wow. that's kind okay. of the, the motif that you get, you know, when you move here. They're not ants, but they do have herpes, so it's <laughs> kind of the same. We're all mutants of a different uh, variety. Yeah. Wow, that's that that's pretty intense, dude. And so this is a this is a nudist colony. Is there a lot of sort of like interspecial intercourse that goes on? I mean, what's that like, Jason? I party? am horny. I am fucking everything. <laughs> you are the ant from Honey. I shrunk the kids. Yes, just trying to get a nut. Yeah, yeah. It shrunk the kids, maybe, but not my wiener. My <laughs> So I am Ryan, Ryan Seabold for the, uh, for the remainder of my existence here. Uh, things are going well. Um, uh, my work ethic has never been better. Uh, I've got a nice tan, uh, nice red tan. Um, yeah, probably can lift heavy shit. Like nothing, no one else's business. Absolutely. My Wi-Fi is going bananas with the antennas on my head. Uh, (laughs) Cell phone service is is great. Picking Uh, up weird of audio drum transmissions on there. Yeah. We're Werner Herzog coming through. Like what the hell's going on? Right. And I've got a great bar story. I mean, let's just be honest. You know, you're grabbing drinks with the fellas are like, (laughs) so tell me about uh, what you got going on. It's like, so I'm an ant. Uh, <laughs> hey baby, do you like thorax? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got plenty more where this came from. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the thorax on this guy. Uh, right? Yeah, the, the fucking abdomen, just slinging abdomen down here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, hey, that all folds in quite nicely to this week's film, which is Matinee. Ryan, why don't you tell us about it? Matinee from 1993 uh, from director Joe Dante. Uh, IMDb has this listed as a showman introduces a small coastal town to a unique movie experience and capitalizes on the Cuban Missile Crisis hysteria with a kitschy horror extravaganza combining film effects, 
stage props, and actors in rubber suits in this salute to the B-movie. This is starring John Goodman, Kelly Martin, Lisa Jacob, Dick Miller, Kathy Moriarty. This is a who's who of late 80s, early 90s. Uh, feel good kind of sci-fi schlocky. I mean, you're recognizing yeah. people from Mrs. Doubtfire and Independence Day and totally. Gremlins and Burbs and all kinds of fun shit. So uh, I loved this movie. Uh, Jason, what did you think about this movie? As always, Ryan, I'm going to be happy to tell you right after this trailer for Matinee. How could such a thing happen, Dr. Cabal? The ant's saliva must have gotten into Bill's bloodstream and gone straight to his brain just as the radiation, which is measured in units called Rentkins, was released. And that's how he became a... Mant. Gotcha! For the kids of Key West, Florida, there was nothing scarier than a monster matinee. Lawrence Wolsey, the master of movie horror, exterminates you with Mant. The story of Mant is based on scientific fact on theories that have appeared in national magazines. But in the fall of 1962... A series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on the island of Cuba. They got the biggest scare of all. The country is on red alert. And what a perfect time to open a new horror movie. That'd be the best show to take a girl to. The whole world's gonna blow up anyway, so we should just do whatever we want. You know, last guy she went out was in reform school. He did teach me a lot. What about? About my body. I think if the bomb were about to fall, she'd do it with me. <laughs> Wait till you see the feelers on this thing. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. Some of it's stage lighting, some of it's magic show stuff, but the big studios, none of them have anything like it. Do never, ever turn one above six. From Joe Dante, director of Gremlins. You see what he's putting back? The showmanship. The bombs are falling! You think this is some kind of picnic for me? I'm still concerned about that bomb thing. Little question of taste? No, no, but your younger patrons, you could have some seat wetness. John Goodman. I love this business. Matinee. Man, I've seen this twice. All right, man. So, Ryan, we're going to go into detail on this, but uh, you and I are going to have a little bit of a disagreement. I was disappointed by this film. Yeah, I I found it to be okay. I I did not dislike it, but as has come up before on on these types of episodes, such like uh, was seeking a friend for the end of the world. Like, I feel like I'm going to have to sort of take the con on this one because you said you loved it. I found it okay. I did. And we're going to go into reasons why. Right. So, uh, yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and, uh, bookend my conversation, um, by starting out and saying that I probably understand why you didn't like it. Um, okay. This movie is an odd one. Uh, it's cause it definitely like, is for sure. Yeah. And we'll, uh, you know, uh, but again. I've also never had a problem with odd films, dude. I yeah. Mean, but it's oddly on. structured. Like it what really the fuck is, is yeah. this movie about? Like who is it about? <laughs> There's no MacGuffin. You're not really following anybody. Um, other than not getting blown up and just watching a bunch of zany shit happen. Uh, but uh, all that but said, hey, it worked for you, obviously. Right. I still enjoyed this movie. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, I'll tell you what, Ryan. Let's go ahead and let's get into this discussion. You got any idea where we should start? At the beginning! At the beginning. Okay, so, opening shot of this film. We actually start with a couple shots of black and white footage of the Hiroshima bombing before we cut to our first stage shot. 
So, we remain in black and white as the camera frames a two-shot of silhouettes. They're occupying either side of the frame. On the left is the shadow of a wiry man operating a motion picture camera atop a crane. Now, this camera is pointed at the silhouette on the right, which is a man dressed in a suit that's sitting in a director's chair with a comically long cigar extending from his mouth. Now, the film's camera then pushes into the man on the right as a title appears on the left, introducing him as, quote, the screen's number one shock expert, producer Lawrence Woolsey. Light then fades in on his face, and he dramatically begins to extol the terrible dangers of the atomic bomb. Now, it doesn't take long for this to turn into a pitch for his latest movie, which is called Mant. Now, Ryan, I don't know what you thought, but I I will right off the bat say that I loved everything about Mant. I just wanted this, to see It's Mant. a sort of... So for anybody listening that hasn't watched this film yet, there's basically a movie within a movie and it's called Mant and it's very obviously inspired by them probably, right? And all those very schlocky 50s movies. It's about a guy who gets bit by a radioactive ant and basically it turns into like a... Well, at first he's like a human ant and then eventually becomes a large ant, which again, I believe is the the point of them. Um, and, you know, we, we pull away and we see that, oh, okay, this guy, uh, Lawrence Woolsey, that's talking to us, he's actually on a movie screen and we're in a movie theater with a bunch of kids that are all very rowdy. By the way, Ryan, I will say uh, the people at this theater, I, I don't know what kind of a... Uh, screenings y'all have over there in florida because this takes place in key west by the way but like i would be pissed if people were talking that much during my movie dude like i'm one of those people like you like whisper to your your spouse and i'm like ahem ahem (laughs) we're in a theater (laughs) sir or madam right (laughs) yeah no uh this was filmed in Cocoa beach florida which is literally straight across the state i live on a peninsula the great state of florida the so so state of florida <laughs> in the united <laughs> states and uh yeah it's just on the other coast on the other side of the dong that is uh my wonderful uh. state so um <laughs> yeah i key west is a ruffiant island in the florida keys chain off the um head of the dick it's the it's the cum it's the pre-cum dripping into the <laughs> caribbean i don't know uh but it's at the tip of that it's the end um so uh key west is where hemingway lived uh, and went crazy it's a ruffian little pirate island um also a spring break destination but uh yeah if ever it there were like some it'd be so much more fun than that just the name key west sounds like a party town no it, it totally is hence the talking <laughs> in the movies they don't give a fuck about anything like oh, if ever there it, was a yeah, yeah, yeah. scenario where you were going to get a disrespect for sitting down and behaving it would be key west. <laughs> so, awesome right gotcha okay that makes a lot more sense yeah, yeah it's so a raucous there for the now. art yeah yeah okay Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Zero fucks. So, uh, zero fucks. Given. <laughs> zero fucks given. Yeah. One hundred percent understood. And the other thing is, we're obviously clearly in the either late fifties or early sixties. I actually did read a description that said it takes place in nineteen sixty-two, which makes sense, uh, probably because that coincides with Cuban Missile Crisis. Yep. I, Ryan, am horrible with history. If it's not a history of cinema, I probably don't know about it. So I had no idea the Cuban Missile Crisis was in 1962. Yeah. As a matter of fact, yeah, the most I knew about the Cuban Missile Crisis was that they made a movie about it that I never saw called 13 Days. Cool. 
You're doing a great job. <laughs> yeah. No, I, it's, yeah uh, I, I crush life. Yeah, because Kennedy and then the Kennedy assassination happened right after this and the Bay of Pigs and the whole bit. Yeah, Guantanamo Bay. And it was our standoff with Russia, basically. The communists I know these were, are names. I, okay. have, I have heard these titles and names and descriptions be thrown around. Right. So it's my understanding <laughs> that Russia was fueling Cuba and using them as a uh, proxy, more or less, to get through to um, do a little... Bit of a, a standoff with the United States. They had nuclear arms. We had nuclear arms following World War II. And um, yeah, we were pointing them at each other and threatening. And so they set up a little military base down in Cuba uh, by way of Castro. And um, yeah, so, you know, they, then, you know, you have the whole uh, kids getting under their desks and, and all the silliness that ensued. Yeah, the duck and cover bullshit. And right. That it's actually help funny anybody. because I... Yeah, because I just uh, I actually just rewatched Doctor Strangelove recently. Oh yeah, and that actually resonated a lot more strongly than it did in the past. I think that's I think that's the kind of the case with most Kubrick films, right? I think when when everyone's younger, you respond to like A Clockwork Orange, and then as you get older, like things like Two Thousand One and Barry Lyndon start to like seem really good all of a sudden where they didn't right. before. Yeah, and um, yeah. So and I think that's kind of now one thing that I did I did also want to mention too is before we continue, we I actually do have a clip of him being Lawrence Woolsey's character selling Mant uh, like the way he does in the beginning of the movie and I would like to go ahead and play that for everyone real quick just in case you haven't seen it to get an idea of the level of camp that we're talking about so here. good observe the ant a miniature marvel of social cooperation and prodigious strength but if a man and an ant were exposed to radiation simultaneously the result would be terrible indeed, for the result would be Mant. feel I should warn you. The story of Matt is based on scientific fact, on theories that have appeared in national magazines. <laughs> yes, these terrible events could happen in your town, in your home, and they will happen in this theater, in Atomovision, the new motion picture miracle that puts you in the action. And so, Ryan, when we come back, uh, one of the things I actually wanted to ask you, so I don't know if you found this to be the case or not, but like right after we leave the the theater, the kid who ends up being, I guess, the main character, that, that's something we'll get into, too. I think the characters, especially the kids, they're super, super thin, but there is that like main character, the blonde kid with his, his younger brother. And they have this shot right after that where he's walking home and like, it was just, it was like the color saturation. I don't know if it was like on my TV, but it was so orange. Yes. It's just, and there's, and there's so many of the colors are so hot in this film. And I don't know if that was one of those things where it was intentional. If it was, you know, maybe the cinematographer was a little bit inexperienced and just went too heavy and too hot on the gels. But like, it does seem like they made a specific point to shoot this film really, really hot. 
And maybe that was just to express the heat of Florida, right? And make everything. But like, I mean, those those lights have no diffusion on them. Every time they're pointed at the top of the actors' heads, like yes. everything's super, super bright. And right. it just seemed it seemed over the top, which obviously makes sense in in certain respects. And and I guess that's one of the things we're gonna talk about over the course of this film is the way in which the juxtapositions and how well they may or may not work. And I have a feeling that some of those things work better for you than they did for me. But there's like over the top and then there's like what feels technically incorrect. And part of me feels like it crossed the line. Yes. So it was my take on this that they shot this. So when when you and I went to film school, they taught us a lot of the rules, quote unquote. And then we were it was up to us to learn how to break said rules. Uh, There were times where I was taken out of this. I could think of a couple of times very specifically where they used um, what are known in our industry as cookies. Uh, okay. where there would Which just be what? like a, a harsh light on the wall and then slits like or, or black lines going across to mimic. Oh, yeah. Um, so for like, like mini the, blinds the shadows or, on the backgrounds on the walls. And right. Stuff like exactly. That. And I'm that like, I did notice dude, they did that, that is some lot. blatant ass cookie use. Like they are just wow. like throwing it in my face. And so, yeah, but, but I think they're kind of like shooting this like an old movie in the sense that which, yeah, which you like, do we're see at seeing, that beginning. Like when they're in the house, you know, like you've got even like the kid who's sitting in front of his television cross legs with literally like the red cowboy hat that like this cross his neck. And it's obviously supposed to evoke that late 50s. I love Lucy. There's a lot of nostalgia. Right. And they're shooting it as such. And the music is kind of as such. And so, um, yeah, but I'm not going to say they succeeded at it. That's just my take on maybe where they were going with it, because. Uh, Joe Dante obviously is a very capable filmmaker. Um, Love him so much, dude. Yeah, and he's coming off of things like The Burbs and Gremlins 2 right before this. And so, uh, you know, I just think that... Gremlins 2 before this? Really? I believe that to be the case. Before 93? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I know that to be the case because the only thing he made after this, the only, get this, the only movie he really made after this is Small Soldiers. Um, and then other <laughs> which than is that, actually was, a really good movie. I mean, I, at least I enjoyed it when I was younger. I haven't seen it. In yeah, a I mean, the two, only other if I you go up and, and pull up his uh, his old roster of shit, he, the only thing he moved on to uh, is TV stuff. I was um, gonna say he's done some episodes of like Masters of Horror, or ABCs yep, of Death, yep. or some shit. Dude, like that. he even did the uh, uh, new. I think it was Miami Vice and MacGyver. He did like ten episodes of each. Like he's been Didn't doing a lot. Someone also remake his Piranha. Uh, Recently? I, believe I feel like someone remade so. his, yes. uh, his first film. Well, it was Piranha 3 Double D, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, because they did Piranha. So that was all Roger Corman. And then I think James Cameron got his start on that and all of that. That was all out of the Corman camp because that's where Johnson. Yeah. John, uh, that's where Joe Dante came from is the Roger Correct. Corman uh, group of things. So, um, yeah. And you'll see a lot of that throughout his film, some of the campy stuff. And that's why, so this was all a throwback and an homage to William Castle. William Castle Correct. is kind of like, you know, uh, right up there with Ed Wood or, you know, it's kind of the schlocky side him, of, by the way, what before, before this film, like, cause I, I had never, I think I had heard the name William Castle, but I had no idea who he was. And I, oh, I absolutely this film was yeah. modeled after him until yeah, because like, I thought it might've been Hitchcock. No, but then there's even that joke about that earlier in the film. So, right. No, I think Hitchcock was uh, was inspired by, in a lot of ways, they, you know, William Castle was the schlocky Ed Wood side of Hitchcock. You know what I'm saying? Gotcha. So, he was he was the esteemed version, and then this guy correct. was the correct. Yeah. Hitchcock made that style of filmmaking more legit. 
Um, yeah, Hitchcock was powder cocaine and William Castle was crack. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where, yeah. William Castle was just straight meth. Let's just do what? <laughs> He's just dirty ass heroin hillbilly. Yeah, meth, like. <laughs> get it out there. What's in there? Who cares? Get it up my nose. So, um, yeah. So, uh, William Castle, if you remember in the late nineties, early two thousands, there was a push of films called dark castle. I believe it was called and Zemeckis, was remaking his movies like 13 yeah, ghosts, 13 ghosts and all house that on shit. haunted hill i think was yeah, one of them yeah i do remember those mm-hmm. yeah yeah so uh, and they they weren't that great i wasn't a big fan yeah i would just rather go back and watch the originals at that point but uh i see where he was <laughs> what he was trying to do um but anyway we're getting way off topic but yeah this was all based on william castle loosely uh kind of looking into this film a little bit online i guess a lot of people in this film were loosely based on other people like the, the filmmaker he was trying to uh, impress at the end and all of that. They're all kind of based loosely based on other people that were really alive at the time. This was all a, a real movement that was going on in that um, the studio system was kind of crumbling. It had not yet given way to the auteurs yet of the 60s. And there was this weird, uh, you know, in between time in the late 50s, early 60s, where uh, people were trying to figure out what was next. And so, and you did have the Cuban Missile Crisis and you did have, uh, we're, we're on the, um, the heels of blacklisting and McCarthyism and all of that. They mentioned that in the film as well. Like so-and-so was blacklisted. Now he works for me. John Goodman mentions that. And so, yeah. um, by the way, John Goodman is a goddamn national treasure. Uh, I just need to start with that. I fucking love he really is. just about yeah, everything, everything he's he in. Does. Like, I don't know that there's a single movie he's done that isn't good because he was like, if it sucks, it's not because he was in it. You know, it wasn't Absolutely. any of the and service the, done by him. And the funny thing, too, is that like he's one of those people where he always plays John Goodman. He does. Like, there's no other character. Arachnophobia, uh, the follow up <laughs> to uh, the horror movie that J.J. Abrams did, the Cloverfield Lane. Yeah. Like Big Lebowski. This one. He's always the same guy, but you're always happy to see him. Oh, kind of not not dissimilar to Robert Downey Jr. in that regard. Obviously, uh, hugs styles, all around for John Goodman. You're just yeah. always happy or John C. Riley, Right. These people yep. would always play the same character, but you're always happy to see them. And and this is be, uh, 1993. So this is peak John Goodman from uh, Roseanne. He's coming right off of yeah. being, uh, you know, from the Connors and all of that. So uh, the Roseanne show um, and uh, that that's where he kind of got his claim to fame, so to speak. Mm. Unless you yeah. want to count raising Arizona, you know, and, and so then, you know, but yeah. all of that was kind of propelling him through. And, 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 you know, this may be his first big starring role, but I digress. I love me some John Goodman. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and let's talk about this, actually, because the Cuban Missile Crisis plays a huge part of this film. And it's really interesting for me to note the way in which these elements were mixed together, really, at the end of the day. Right. Because you've got this sort of schlocky B-movie horror thing and then you've got the Cuban Missile Crisis. And when you put it down on paper and you talk about it logically, it really does make sense, right? Like, oh, there's this crazy thing going on here, this real world scare, right? Where the world could literally come to an end at any moment. And so we escape through these films, right? And through these, especially these huge schlocky horror movies, right? And there's actually like, you know, the illusions that John Goodman's character himself makes where he's talking about, you know, the reason we go into the films is because, uh, you know, there's this terrible danger and, you know, we feel that excitement. But, you know, when 
As long as the hero succeeds at the end, we sort of live vicariously through that. So there's that feeling of triumph and everything that sort of goes along with that, right? So on paper, I, I very much sort of like understand where that comes from. But the the tone in which it bounces back and forth, I mean, there's a lot of real world scenarios, right? There's the way that we're introduced to the sort of main girl, I guess you could call her, right? Where they're doing the duck and cover drill and she comes from, you know, the liberal family and she's standing up and talking about how this is all bullshit and it's not going to help them in the event of nuclear war and da 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 and gets dragged right. to the principal's office and all that sort of stuff. And so, um, you know, it's, and then we see like the air raids, which, which is funny because we also just, you know, watched, uh, did Grave of the Fireflies, last episode or before the bonus episode i have in my notes this is there was a lot of air raids in that this is the second film in a row uh this is the second dad on a warship movie uh (laughs) where's your dad he's on a warship fighting the commies oh okay it's like right back (laughs) to that again Apparently we're apparently we're a very streaky show or our luck is streaky because we had like those five, you know, sci-fi horror genre films in a row. Now we sort of get these two war films in a row that are very right. unconventional sort of war films or anti-war films, however you want to call them. So kind of interesting the way that that's working out. Um, well, but yeah, so, so you, you, you spend the first act of the film really doing a lot of world building, like what you're talking about. And yeah. It didn't feel like a Joe Dante film per se. Like you know, it doesn't. Yeah, it didn't really... feel like a cartoon all the whole time. It just kind of has these certain moments. It's, that it's do. inconsistent uh, a little bit. Yes. but Joe John Goodman pulls it through. But I don't know who this movie's about. I don't know who the protagonist is. Are we following John Goodman? There's not really an antagonist, an antagonist. Get it? Uh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so you're just kind of like bouncing around. There's this whole cast of characters. You've got the two children. Um, whose father is fighting in the war on a warship. Um, they're stationed on a military base. Uh, the kid talks about moving once a year um, because his father gets relocated. Uh, by the way, I thought that was like a little Jason and Ryan, like him and his little brother, except I'm the little brother probably. Um <laughs> But yeah, because they, they use escapism of film to uh, get rid of the because this whole thing had a very uh, par- uh, timely parallel to me to the covid crisis that we're in right sure. now. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you got and it obviously wasn't intended to do that because in 1993, covid-19 did not exist. But uh, you've got bomb drills versus mask mandates and like people debating what. Oh, that's not real. That's not going to work. People being guilted into doing things. Oh, you're a communist if you're not going, you know, lockstep and and um, yeah. just on and on. You you know, going down. Everything's being canceled. They mention at the lunch table at, at the, their school, like, oh yeah, if there is a movie a theater this weekend. They might close down. You know, this sort of thing. Yeah, the danger. Dude, I thought it was so funny. By the way, there's that scene where they go to the. The um, grocery store, the or grocery like store, right? Yeah. yeah, and everybody's and and the one thing everybody is hoarding is toilet paper, and I was like, what? <laughs> Oh, right. man, human behavior is so predictable. It's so predictable, right. <laughs> and at the end of the fucking film, John Goodman even closes it out by saying, you know, yeah, and, until next week to, and when they invent another world-ending apocalypse, blah, 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 yeah. you know? And I'm like, <laughs> fucking shit, here we are, you know? Like, they, Joe Dante had it pegged. But um, anywho, yeah. uh, I digress. No, and then, by well, the way, just, for just, our it listeners... It just goes to show how cyclical everything is and right, how cyclical right. his history is. Well, and not for nothing, just to be very clear, I'm not taking anything away from the legitimacy of either the Cuban Missile Crisis or COVID-19. 
uh, I, right. I think both of those are very real threats or were. Sure. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know that the Cubans and Russia are still trying to get us. But, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's just how we as humans respond to them that I found to be cyclical more than anything else. And, um, yeah, yes, a lot, correct. a lot of parallels in how we as humankind uh, respond to crisis. Some of us coming together. Some of us absolutely losing our shit, or most of us, perhaps. So, <laughs> Yes, but but the one consistency is that all of us sort of do want that escape, right? And we turn to different outlets for that. And, yes. you know, whether it's films, whether it's podcasts, whether it's the stock market, whether right. it's learning a language, learning an instrument, exercising, learning how to cook. There's so many different things. And, and that's the one good thing that came out of that, you know, like we're such a work driven society, like especially pre COVID. Like, I think that's the one thing that allowed everybody to take a step back and be like, mm-hmm. dude, like, what is this? What is this society we've created that is literally just work into the bone to pay your bills till you die and give the fucking state your house or whatever the fuck you managed to cobble until then. Right. You know? Yeah. I think people are like sort of like re reassessing that. I think that's really good for us, you know? And I think that when, when we do have a lot of different passions and especially if it's, you know, with an arts business, whatever, you know, that, that energy that we might put towards getting pissed off at other people and blaming them for shit, you know, we can put that into these creations and these, systems and businesses and whatever it is we're trying to get done, you know, right. So much healthier than just sitting there and like getting pissed off about one side or the other, you know, Uh, it it, it kind of was like when you're at, when you're all fucked up at a party and you're just going along with it because everyone's going along with it. And then you go in the bathroom (laughs) and you shut the door and you see yourself in the mirror and you're like, Oh yeah. And it's this sobering (laughs) moment where it's like, I got to get out of here. Like COVID-19 has been that sobering trip to the bathroom for me where I've looked in the mirror and said, the fuck am I doing? Like Jesus Christ, (laughs) time to call it, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man, it's pretty nuts, dude. It's pretty nuts. But like you say, you know, uh, there's been, there's been tragedies every day, you know, and you even hear that, too, you know, about when people step into the presidency, you know, and just the the knowledge of knowing that, like, every day, like, our society is, you know, one move away from total collapse or one yeah. attack or one false move. Like, that's just some crazy shit to have to live with, you know? And now aliens, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's about damn time, you know. Yeah, that's what, let's get it over with. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, a, so it's a lot more these- fun until they actually show up and like then try to subjugate us. But for now, <laughs> we can have like fun, mem- fun, fun projections of you know getting cool tech given to us and I going for on space one, Welcome our new alien overlord. So if you're out there <laughs> catching the airwaves uh, and you hear my voice, I mean, hell, we've made it to every continent outside of Antarctica, Jason. It's true. Um, so and with your help, there, alien overlords, we can get there. I don't think it's far fetched to think they're listening right now. I really don't. <laughs> It's true. It's true. Especially once you start getting into, you know, some some uh, some of the heavier and headier topics about time and space and, you know, time being linear or a flat circle or all these sort of different things. I mean, they could be in an entirely different metaverse listening to us right now. I think you're just describing the endless and the void. (laughs) The last several. We have been watching way too many genre films. It's a good (laughs) thing that we're stepping away. (laughs) So, you know, real quick, getting back to this film. So you've got John Goodman playing the William Castle style character or whatnot as a film director, producer. um, And uh, you got Kathy Moriarty playing his 
uh, I don't know if it was his wife or girlfriend, but uh, either I think way, this is his girlfriend, female Heavy partner, Faye Dunaway vibes, by the way. Yeah, yeah, female, but a lot of vibes from everybody, and so that you're following them on one side of it, and he's getting ready to uh, open this new release, Mant. He's rigging the movie local movie theater. This is all in Key West, Florida, with buzzers and pyro and all the fun stuff to make it interactive and 4d if you will uh it very much reminded me of the muppets 4d theater for anyone that's been to the orlando disney world uh, hollywood studios so um then you've got uh, the, t- the two kids who are uh, kind of taking the the, com- the comedy away now we're in a are you talking about tone. the blonde brothers because Correct. there's a number of kids and they're all very disposable there are but we follow <laughs> the two blonde brothers like the two blonde brothers are are our main uh, you know, vehicle to get through to all the other kids. And so you see their love interests um, by way of Lisa Jacob and Kelly Martin, Kelly Martin from life goes on fame and Lisa Jacob from independence day and Mrs. Doubtfire. She was one of those kids. Um, yeah. I, by the way, uh, being the same age bracket as Lisa Jacobs, she was one of my childhood crushes as a kid from this movie and Mrs. Doubtfire and independence day and all that. Uh, yeah, I think so, uh, she was, I think that was kind of the case with, uh, for everybody. It was her and then Anna Klumski from, my okay. Girl. Yeah. Yeah. Anna Klumski. Yeah. Right. From my girl, um, made a movie about it. Mm, the <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So we follow these two kids and that's where the tonal shift kept going back and forth. Cause you've got jolly old, uh, John Goodman and everything, all his hijinks. And then you follow these kids and it's like, yeah, my dad's in the war on a ship. I, and it's like all this weird shit. And it's like, uh, and you're kind of seeing how that affects them and the seriousness of the Cuban missile crisis as the backdrop to this. Um, yeah. But then they also juxtapose that with this entire, like, horny kids subplot yes which, like you forget right. like was like until recently was actually like a pretty consistent genre whether you're talking about porkies or like american pie or right. honestly it's funny because i think the last film to really do it on a major level was book smart and that was sort of like the female version of yeah, that whole yeah. horny kids trying to get laid thing yeah but that's that just like a high school recently, that was a high school party see. movie like can't hardly wait or something like this is yeah no the, the bombs are coming these kids are horny they have nothing <laughs> yeah. to lose and they are all horny as hell <laughs> and they're all just trying to figure out ways that they could like cop feels and get right. with chicks and blah 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 so this is, and like I, I, I have in my notes here that this is kind of like, it's funny uh, that we're watching this in Graves uh, of the Fireflies back to back because. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you listen to us, folks. Yeah, you get right. both sides. Uh, as esoteric as it comes. So we have um, <laughs> Graves showing the innocence of children uh, against the backdrop of war and how kids will be kids regardless and, and how they entertain themselves and play with the fireflies and capture them and put them in the caves. Cut to Key West, Florida on the, against the same fucking backdrop. And we just want to like watch movies and fuck and like, what a smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and you got the greaser kid, you know, it's like the jets and the sharks and all that living out his West yeah. side story. Fantasy's a little too late in the game. And, uh, I was like, Holy shit. This is how America <laughs> handles it versus like, you know, Japan and uh, world war two is like, uh, absolutely great. absolutely cool. now one of the things that i also want to mention is just uh, first of all i love the movie within a movie 
just the yes. whole concept of that. Like, I think it almost always works. I actually even watched like a French film from Agnes Varda called Cleo from five to seven recently. And that was filmed in like the sixties in black and white. And like, she even did that where she did like an old 1930s short film, like a Charlie Chaplin style thing. So that's something that's been going on for like a long time in cinema. And, but it's also not overused. You know what I mean? People don't do it so often. So I think it's always pretty welcome when it does show up. And in addition to the porn from Videodrome. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. That whole like, Japanese gardens or whatever that whole yeah didn't he make sensual, that like an actual he did yeah he bonus did a content <laughs> mini TV series which I still maintain is he just has a Japanese fetish and he was like <laughs> yeah nah I'm gonna film this whole softcore porn with Japanese people <laughs> even though we're gonna show like what thirty seconds of it across the entire movie yep. <laughs> that was some Sean Connery shit. That was some like, oh no, I think we fucked up the breast grabbing scene. We need to get that shit again. Yep. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So the uh, so in addition to Mant though, there's also we get a, a brief glimpse of the sort of non horror movie that the kids go to at their mom's urging, and it's called the Shook Up Shopping Cart. I thought yes. that was very funny, and that's sort yeah. of old school like. Uh, you know, 50s comedy stylings as well. So that was a take on, uh, according to what I found online, that was a, di- a direct thumbing of the nose at uh, what Disney and other cheap Disney ripoffs were doing at the time where sure. just make an inanimate object come to life. That's Herbie the Love Bug. <laughs> that's uh, Shaggy Dog. Um, that's, you know, uh, the Flubber. Yeah. Uh, or the, or whatever the <laughs> you know uh, inventor or whatever the fucking Flubber movie was. Um, Dude, that's, ran- that's okay. That's marketing genius, though, dude. That's a that's a protagonist that I don't have to pay. Okay, I don't have to pay a computer that comes to life. Maybe the actor that voices him, but that's a lot cheaper (laughs) than having him on film. Yeah. So like Flubber was uh, the the shittiest one of them all because uh, it's like we ran out of shit to bring (laughs) to life. So bad they remade it with Robin Williams. What about this? What about this pile of goop that we'll just make come to life? Oh, okay. Yeah, that'll do. Cool. That's really one of those things where the writer or producer was like fucking chain smoking a cigarette on the way into a big meeting, has yep. to pitch a movie, has fucking nothing, steps in some slime. <laughs> steps like, in God gum. damn it. Wait a minute. What? <laughs> Walks out of that meeting with a fucking deal. <laughs> yep. You're going places, kid. But... Uh, by the way, the other thing that was that I thought was cool about the that film is right. At, so when they leave the shopping cart, they've got the two guys that are picketing and they end up being right actors that are sort of faking it for the publicity. But it's a Dick Miller sighting. And I yes! love Dick Miller sightings. Absolutely. Uh, for, Dick Miller. for those that are listening that don't know that name, you should recognize him as Mr. Futterman from Gremlins and Gremlins 2. The best. Uh, he, yeah. He also had a I guess there was like some sort of private investigator or like a Kojak type guy called Walter Paisley was a big character of his. I can't say that I've seen any of those films. Yeah. So he's uh yeah. Cause obviously he's like um, the, the Joe Dante version or the, you know, the, the Roger Corman, Peter Falk yeah, is what he always reminds yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, but also going cars. back a little ways uh, to the shopping cart film. Did you notice that uh, we also had a Naomi Watts signing? What? That was Naomi Watts. Very first appearance in a film she played the female uh, lead that the uh, shopping cart was attacking wow that's crazy 
Nuts, dude. Nuts. That's crazy. She looks exactly the same, by the way. <laughs> not a bit younger, not a bit older. Just Naomi Watts. That's awesome. Circa 93. That's awesome. So, the, so okay, speaking of, of, of weird things that don't work in this film, dude, we've got to talk about this fucking greaser guy because... Okay, so so this character is his name is Harvey, okay? And yep. he's 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 a greaser. Now, we 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 meet this blonde girl, okay? She's kind of attracted to one of the boys appropriately aged uh in her class, right? And she's trying to get him to go to the movies with her uh or no, do some sort of volunteering. He bails on her to go to the movie. She ends up going to the movie season there. There's a little bit of a tussle there, but they'll make up for it by the end. Um, this, this Harvey character, this greaser guy is still apparently very much in love with this, you know, 13, 14 year old, you know, junior Uh, high school girl. I already know where you're going with this, Jason. I've looked this up. Go on. He, he has to be he has to be uncomfortably old. There is a scene where he is in a bar. Jason. He's in a bar getting a beer and he sees Dick Miller and the other yes. guy. What the hell is going on with this age discrepancy? He, he has is... a receding hairline. <laughs> he covers it up by brushing his hair forward. And you can clearly oh. see that he's like a 40 year old man. No, and he... I don't know if he was supposed to be 40 in the movie or like Joe owed a friend a fucking role and he put him in. But what the fuck, dude? So this greaser character um is 27 years old at the time of, <laughs> of this film and even in the context of the film that's grossly old though right these kids are in what middle school like there's yeah. no way they're She's freshmen like 14 at most. max yeah so the his love interest that he's jealous of so there's this weird love triangle wherein the new kid in school played by one of our brothers um that has recently moved to town dad on the warship uh is he is now being approached uh, or or uh, by a friend who is this weird... He walks like a bulldog with his chest out, kind of like... I don't know. He had a weird strut going on, but that's neither here nor there. This kid, uh, because all these kids are horny, because the world is coming to an end, they're finding their sexuality. Um, there's a love interest of Kelly Martin. Kelly Martin from Life Goes On and millions of Hallmark films. Uh, sure. You'd recognize her if you saw her out there, folks. Uh, she is, at the timing of this film, 16 years old, playing a 14-year-old. This kid is 27 years old in a bar <laughs> hanging out with Dick Miller. So <laughs> no idea what's going on. 100%, dude. And and especially because like before we actually realize who Harvey is, she has that whole thing where she's talking to the 14-year-old kid in her class about right. how this, quote, slightly older guy gave her this whole sexual awakening and taught her things about her body that she wants to continue exploring. Gross. And then you meet him and he's got a fucking receding hairline. What the hell? Yes. That's illegal. Right. It should have just been Dick Miller. <laughs> At this point, it should have just been Dick Miller. Is that how you all do things in Miller. Florida, Ryan? Uh, what? Wait, what? Is that how you all do things in Florida? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a Florida uh, no. thing. That is not how we do things in Florida, unless <laughs> your name is Matt Gates, I think. Uh, <laughs> so Buzzing. Maybe. Um, hey. Yeah. That's not how I... Yeah, yeah. that was so, super creepy, dude. Super creepy. It should have just been Dick Miller. That would have been fucking hilarious, by the way. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, there's this slightly older man that has been teaching me things about my body. And Dick Miller walks in. And he's like, hey, what's going on? He's smoking a cigarette. <laughs> 
Come on, kid. I'll show you things you never knew could exist. I'll get you in the rated R movie I and buy you some booze. I can show you the world. <laughs> He's got a switchblade comb. He fucking combs his hair back. And then on top of everything, like, the character's not weird enough. They're like, oh, by the way, your character also delivers really bad poetry awkwardly. Yes. And it was like a like, beatnik, greaser. Who is this supposed to be a parody of? Nobody like this actually exists. Nobody. <laughs> and yet, and yet I like this movie. <laughs> I'm Fuck still on board convention. at this point. <laughs> Maybe because yeah, of, if not, a... in spite of. And that's the thing, Ryan, is like, so, you know, we I, we've had films like this before where it's sort of like, for me, this is just one of those things where, Aside from this whole weird, you know, older dude discrepancy thing, like there's a lot to like about this movie in a vacuum, right? Like we've already yes. talked about the John Goodman performance, which is very right? charming. And also Kathy Moriarty. I thought she did a great job Fantastic. for not having too much screen in the time. Mint, but a uh, sub movie within yeah, a movie the, is hilarious. Oh, the absolutely. puns in that film are hysterical. <laughs> hysterical. What do we call him? Bill. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Kathy, so, uh, I'm an ant. What do you think my life is? A picnic? <laughs> <laughs> and then I think there's one time where he like smashes the ant farm and he's like, go, my brothers, be free. <laughs> I'm living okay, on crumbs here. here. <laughs> <laughs> so now here's the thing, Ryan. I'm going to take a gamble here because it just based on the way that you're talking, I feel like you may not know this. And so this is for potentially you. But for anybody listening that is enjoying everything that we are talking about with this Mant, or if you saw the film and you enjoyed everything about Mant, it is a 15-minute short film completely edited, available on YouTube right this very moment. Shut the front door! Are you serious? You can can go watch it. I started watching it when I was doing some research on the clips for the show. I I have it saved. I'm going to listen as soon as we're done with this. Absolutely. Like tonight. That's... There yeah. is such good <laughs> writing in that film from a schlocky standpoint. I cannot wait. Yeah, yeah. So anybody that wants to check that out, again, that's on YouTube right now. Go just uh, type in Mant and uh, it'll come up with an exclamation point if you want to be uh, technically precise. So now the one thing we haven't talked about either, Ryan, and that's, you know, for look, we have a, we have a movie podcast. And so much like Bowfinger, you know, or any other film that's going to sort of like extol the love of film and cinema, whether it's high art, low art or anywhere in between. Like, I'm here for that. I love films. We wouldn't do this fucking show if we didn't. So I, I adore it. And so there's, you know, the whole context of Lawrence Woolsey's character loving movies and loving making them and showing them. And there's the main character, the blonde kid, and he loves movies and watching them. And that's what all these kids bond over in light of all this terrible situation that's going on around them with the Cuban Missile Crisis, is just these schlocky B-movies that they love. And there's even a very, very lovely... It's very short, but it's a very nice little monologue that John Goodman gives when the kid ends up going to work for him because he kind of calls out the fact that he recognized that the picketer is one of the actors from his movie. And so he's like, ah, kid, well, hey, why don't you come work for me? And uh, and we just keep that between you and me. And so he gives him a little monologue that I have here that I'm going to play real quick for everybody. A zillion years ago, a guy's living in the cave. He goes out one day, bam, he gets chased by a mammoth. Now he's scared to death, but he gets away. And when it's all over with, he feels great. Well, yeah, because he's still living. Yeah, but he knows he is, and he feels it. So he goes home, back to the cave. First thing he does, he does a drawing of the mammoth. And he thinks, 
people are coming to see this. Let's make it good. Let's make the teeth real long and the eyes real mean. Boom. The first monster movie. That's probably why I still do it. Make the teeth as big as you want, then you kill it off, everything's okay, the lights come up. <sighs> and as you said, Ryan, he's trying to outfit the theater with all this kind of cool schlocky stuff and the seat buzzers and everything, and the entire movie is really leading up to the exhibition of the film Mant on uh, Friday night. We also are introduced to the head usher shortly thereafter, who's played by Robert Picardo. And this is a guy that you've seen in a million things. You just don't know his name. He's been in Star <laughs> right, Trek yep. Voyager and a million other things. And like, he's a good character actor. He's always a welcome sight. I enjoy him. And uh, uh, I'm so, but yeah. And we also discover that this Harvey character has shown up and accepted a role to basically play a masked version of Mant in a costume that's going to, like, run out and scare people at certain times during the exhibition. So, and this yeah, is going let's stop to... here for a second. So you've got, <laughs> like, all these subplots going on simultaneously, none of which are the main plot. I don't even know that this yeah. movie has a plot. I really I don't. don't. I could not pick out a main character to save my soul. The kids, I guess, the yeah. two blonde brothers, really would be the main ones if you had to choose um however i dare you to find them on the cover art for the movie or the movie poster <laughs> in any way shape or form if they're our protagonist you'd think they'd at least be it's just john goodman in a big theater with this word yeah. matinee so this movie's a mess like it's an absolute mess and 100%. you're bouncing back and forth you're spending quite a bit of time at this point in the film with the 27 year old statutory rapist greaser kid <laughs> in Dick Miller and all of that. You're finding out his whole subplot. You're following for entire scenes in the movie, five, 10 minutes, the friend who walks like a French bulldog. Um, who's the, in the love triangle with Kelly Martin and all of yeah. that. Um, and it gets way away from the brother dynamic. Uh, and you kind of go back to them to be like, Oh yeah, remember? And they're sad because of their dad, but also, and then you go, uh, back to John Goodman and Kathy Moriarty in the theater. And then you're with the theater owner. We find out the theater owner slash usher has this like, um, you know, the, one of the, uh, the survival, um, tanks or, or whatnot, the bomb shelters, uh, that he's built into the theater of all places. Like that, that's, that's where he just lives there or something. Uh, that's where he's going to go out is at the theater. <laughs> so, yeah. um, he loves movies that much, but then there's like entire scenes with him. And so, uh, I get, you know, sometimes breaking off from the narrative to a subplot, but this movie is entirely consisted of only subplots. Am I wrong? Yes. In that? No, you're not. And I've actually I 100 percent came to the same conclusion. 100 percent agree with you. I've thought about it. And I think that what happened with this is that I think that everything the entire premise of why they made this film, Joe Dante and the rest, it was really just centered around that moment at the end where the quote-unquote bomb goes off you know and and it really just ends up like all sort of like being a ruse and such and yeah. i think that i think that it was really about making the theatrical experience for them and then they realized like well wait that's we don't have a character to pin our story on and then kind of tried to reverse engineer a bunch of different subplots and just none of them ended up connecting and and right. so yeah i think that's kind of how that came to be yeah, so I, I mean, guess. Joe Dante is no... Yeah, he's no he's, slouch. Well, he's he's no stranger to a um, an ensemble cast 
And, um, you know, a lot of what we've seen from him does consist around larger cast of people, but there's always a sure. central character to pull it all together, right? There's 100%, yeah. Tom Hanks and the Burbs or, you know. Yeah, you uh, got Billy and Gremlins. Right, right. So, uh, you know, you'll go all around and see these Gremlins affecting the whole town and how the town is going through this crazy scenario. Um, but you always come back to Billy, right? So, uh, or Tom Hanks's character or whatnot. Uh, but this didn't have that that comeback. I think you're right. I think that it, the the third act felt like a Joe Dante film, and the rest of the film felt the other two acts really just felt like stilts to get us there, or some kind of vehicle uh, of world building to get us there. And um, yeah, because once that third act kicked in, I was on board all the way. Interesting. So you know what's funny is for me, once the third act kicked in, I kind of actually felt a little bit disappointed because I was like. Well, this is this is kind of all you have in store for me. Like, you already really? kind of set all this up. You know what I mean? Like, okay, like the buzzers go off. Great, you showed us, you showed us you installing those into the film. So the surprise that the audience gets is not a surprise that I, as a viewer, get because I know it's there. Like, yeah, so but that wasn't meant to be a surprise. There's no like, no, I understand. So basically, there's buzzers in the seats. You know what this is? This is the equivalent of fucking Twitch. This is the equivalent of watching someone else have a great time in a fun house. You're, you're just watching someone do cool shit and it's not happening to you. I would love to be in this theater, but it wasn't like one of those things where it's like, oh, I feel like I'm having this experience again. I felt like I was watching people have an experience that I didn't get to be a part of. And from there, like but it didn't have anything more going on. I don't know the same way that Peter Jackson makes you feel like you're a part of all these zombies dying and dead alive. Like I, I can't sit here and tell you mathematically like, Oh, he should have done this, that, the other, whatever. Okay. But I was okay. just saying that like, you know, and then, and then I think so even maybe he if they were showing him doing something in the theater, like setting something up, but you didn't know what it was. And then at the end, there's so, the payoff of seeing what it was that he was doing the whole time. Correct. Like it was more elusive. So, so, for example, this is what I thought. I did think of one thing that would have helped the film, right? So, we do get that moment where the, you know, quote-unquote bomb goes off and the screen explodes. But because of the nature of everything, we've already seen them play the screen tricks. We know what's going on. Like, we pretty much know when that happens that that is part of this film, part of this whole experience, that the bombs didn't really drop off, right? I think it would have been really cool to really lay into that. So instead, because what happens is the bombs go off and then everybody immediately rushes outside and we immediately get a shot of them all running outside into the sunlight. So that sort of, you know, fake out really only exists for at most five seconds if you bought into it in the first place. OK, he right, right. away lets you know that that is not the case. I would have loved to see it go the other way. I would have loved to see the bomb go off and then all of a sudden they're trapped in the theater. Right. Like there's a bunch of rubble, you know, outside the doors and they can't get out and they have to escape. Try to kind of like what they try to do with the um with the vault, the bomb vault, which was super clunky, and we're going to get into that in a minute with the two kids. But I would have loved to see that feel trapped, and then all of a sudden we see people freaking out. We see the different responses and human emotions. You know, some people, try, like you said, some people trying to come together, some people, you know, out for themselves, uh, trying to screw other people over, da-da-da. Let us sit in that for maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then, you know, somehow they do finally escape, and then we get that reveal, like, oh, it was actually so... To me, it was like there was... There was a definite opportunity for Dante to really extract some good drama as a viewer from that moment, and he didn't. 
he didn't give us that, and I don't know why he 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 approached it that way. Yeah, I mean, we know though that they didn't bomb us, right? I mean, like that's a. I mean, maybe not you because you suck. Well, yeah, at but history. we're in a we're in a movie, <laughs> you know. We can we can still forget that for a minute. And plus, we're in a Joe Dante world, so by the end of it. With knowing nothing happened, okay, we can retroactively go back. But he's a filmmaker that can create a world where anything Touché. can happen. You right. know what I mean? So yeah. if it if the, if the, if the movie did play out that way, we wouldn't have second guessed it. We would have gone with right. It. Your response to me is Gremlins don't exist either, Ryan. So get over it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's it's the just thing, a movie, dude. Buddy. If, that's what I'm saying, dude. If he like introduced the gremlin and then like two minutes later, like the one main gremlin before he had a chance to spawn and reproduce was killed off. Like, what would you give a shit? Like, I so was you here wanted, to see some fucking gremlins. You wanted this to be like a 10 Cloverfield Lane moment with, you know, everyone's trapped in and they don't know what's I, going I, on I, outside. I just, I wanted some sort of, I wanted me to be part of the experience. Again, okay. I felt like everything in the third act was me watching cool shit happen to someone else. That's why I yeah. make it like Twitch. Like, it's like watching other people play a game. Like, I'm not one of those people. I don't have any interest in that. I want to play a game. And if you want to watch me play a game, cool, go right ahead. But I don't want to watch you play a game. I want to play that game myself. Right, right. Yeah, but the dude, the the puns and the witty dialogue were a mile a minute. Um, uh, to the point where Kelly Martin, when she's being told that you know that uh, she was brought to this because of the little brother, and oh well, my little brother wanted to see the movie and all of that, and, and the whole baiting of of getting her to like his friend. Uh, and she's like, Oh, that's so sweet that he would consider a little boy. Get out of here, Dwight. And she tells her little brother, <laughs> you know, to scram, uh, just all the, and then the man, uh, puns. And I don't know, man, I was really, okay. But let's the, so go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I want to talk about this Harvey thing because the whole reason that Harvey is there is to set up the moment where this girl that's half his age that he still pines for ends up making out with the other kid. And then Harvey rages out and, Beats up the small, the the, 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 the underage kid who's half yes. his age as well. Yes. And then proceeds to, before things are done, grab a knife and take the Kathy Moriarty character hostage. And. No, I, I thought it was Kelly under- Martin. No, I think, no, she, like, he does that. He ends up, I think, uh, doing it with the kid and then he ends up taking, like, the nurse or whatever. Um, and no, no, I th- I'm like 90% sure he takes Kelly Martin away from that kid and says, you're coming with me. And then they take a car and he's kidnapping her because Kathy Moriarty has been in the theater with John Goodman the whole time. She's there down in the, in the safe in the bomb shelter and all that. Right. I, 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 I honestly, I just, I mean, I have in my notes here that he grabs nurse slash, uh, Lawrence's GF. So. I would think John Goodman would have been way more concerned because he's John Goodman has a line that I have written in my notes as they're driving away. uh, He's literally kidnapping someone at knife point. And John Goodman uh, coyly says, what does she see in that guy? (laughs) (laughs) Meaning there are a couple. No, but what happens? I mean, uh, what happens is he Harvey takes out the knife and grabs it. And then that's when the bomb goes off, quote unquote. And so everybody fucking mad rushes out of the theater. And that's how they get him like away from him. Okay. Away from him. That's what I have here. Uh Well, anyway, the the Harvey characters outside (laughs) the theater being arrested at the end. Um, because yeah. they try to pin him on ruining the theater. He's like, I didn't do it. He did it. And then he points over and he's, you know, being put into a cop car. So 
Yeah, which, by the way, like, so there's this whole thing where uh, Lawrence is showing the exhibition for, like, you know, some financier that's going to pick up the picture. Like, there is no way that movie makes money. I know they have that throwaway line where he's like, oh, the insurance will give it back to you. But it's like, no, no, not if not if you knowingly are doing this and going in and cutting out circles and retrofitting and fucking with everything. Like, you right. can't just be like, oh, yeah, uh, insurance. I blew up. I intentionally blew up my theater. You owe me money to recoup uh, not only the expenses, but also so we can make a profit on the movie. Well, in all and fairness, there's only one screening. You get one screening. They didn't yeah, pay more for that movie. They paid well, 50 they cents because it's 1962. The theater blew up because the kid neglected his duties and cranked everything to 11. So the pyro and the and the sonic booms and all the bass and stuff shook the theater to its core, right? That was the whole uh, okay. ruse. And so had it that. been done properly and properly executed, gotcha. um, but because it was cranked to 11, it created so much hype that he was able to get his name in the paper and uh and you know the, everyone who came out of the theater saying i can't wait to see that next weekend and blah 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 so to your point would it taper off if it wasn't cranked to 11 or would it have been so popular who knows uh but uh, i would argue that um who it is strange that a theater would allow you to modify the theater itself i.e. cut holes in seats but uh william castle did in fact do exactly that for the tingler starring Vincent yeah. price and put buzzers in seats and stuff like that. And he played a lot with, I mean, I think 3d was pretty popular around this time with the old school blue and red glasses and, yeah. and all of that. So uh, people were looking for new reasons to get into the cinema um, because there wasn't yeah, television was coming out and they, there was right, a lot of competition right. from television. Blockbusters really didn't exist to. yet. Um, and this cut to 50 years later, crumbling. it's even worse. <laughs> 60 yeah, years later. Well, yeah. I mean, well now they're kind of, yeah, that's another thing altogether, but yeah, they're just, you know, it was a weird time in movie history that we forget in the early sixties where, uh, I mean, pick one, pick a movie in the early sixties, your big studio tentpole releases, around this time, I would imagine are like Lawrence of Arabia and bridge over the river Kwai and stuff like that. Yeah. It's around that time, late fifties, early sixties. So here's the thing, dude. I think this is right around the time where this was like the studio's death rattle to try to save yes. themselves. Right. And then they don't. And they basically end up selling everything to the mob who runs the industry for like somewhere between 10 and 20 years. And that's why you got all of these like auteur films from the sixties where they were like, Oh, you want like $10,000 and you'll go make a movie and we don't have to hire any other people. Cool. Yeah. Here you go. And so yeah. that was, it was funny because it was basically like the mob cheapskating the financing of films that led to like what would ultimately be the Indian auteur revolution. Well, that because was all under like, like yeah. Robert Evans and stuff, right? Yeah, I mean that was right around that time. Like Evans was 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 part of the Hollywood system. He was one of the people that was like, yeah, but he was perpetuating that auteur movement and giving them an umbrella within which to operate freely. Like, yeah, but that was but that was different. It was, so I, I literally just read a book about Robert Evans in China. Yeah, yeah. Actually. So yeah, so no, he's his thing is he was basically yeah he was actually trying to make that whole movement like mainstream. Like he was very mm -hmm. much like an art guy and he loved directors and so. Like he started this thing called the direct 
director's company that like it was like communism. It sounds great until you put it into 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 practice because it was basically three filmmakers where they would all get equal share on each other's films and they would all make the same amount of films and then cut to like five years later and like one dude's made one film while the other two made three and this guy's <laughs> films bombed but this guy's films made movies and so they're all fucking pointing fingers like you owe me money for that. You owe me money for that. And it was like, ah, uh, this is why this doesn't work. <laughs> human behavior again so so consistent regardless through the years it'll always be the same but anyways we digress from the fact that yeah so this is kind of how this film ends right and it doesn't wrap up really any of these subplots like the theater gets destroyed and you know we do see the one guy being arrested and you know Lawrence gets his 60 picture deal but like we don't really see any of the kids there's that whole thing we don't even need to go into detail but just again to use our favorite word that very ham-fisted scene where they insert the kids getting locked in the bomb vault and like again Ryan like these kids are horny it's been 10 minutes and they're like well looks like we're gonna have to repopulate the earth <laughs> I was like that happened so oh, fast man. Like, we had a good run yep. oh man <laughs> yep and then of course they get busted out like 10 minutes later and there's really no reason for that happening funny side note i don't know if you caught this as well for whatever reason the the older blonde brother hated lisa J uh, jacob did not like her whatsoever and so the makeout scenes between the two of them that you would think would be like the most fun thing for a kid uh, very very difficult for them to get Weird. through because they hated each other man if only thirteen, <laughs> if only thirteen year old me could have subbed in, right? I mean, right. <laughs> hey, hey, tag out, bro. I got you on this. Or twenty seven year old me, apparently. Joe Dante was cool. <laughs> apparently, Just fucking let it ride. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> I got my leather jacket, girl. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so yeah dude i mean it's just again like you know the 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 these parts individually you know like some of the cool shots uh, a lot of the cool stuff that goes on in the theater uh the mance movie within the movie the shopping yeah. movie, you know these things are really cool in and of themselves and and i i think i'm gonna enjoy the 15 minute mant short film more than i will the 90 minute matinee that features parts from it you know like That's i really fair. like a lot of what they did here but yeah as we've discussed over the course of this episode dude like it was just such a mishmash of ideas and concepts and juxtapositions and you know it's like we've talked about you know it's like you've got all of these great ingredients and you fucking put them in a gumbo that and they just don't have any business being with one another they don't congeal together and so you know when you take a bite of that soup instead of it being one cohesive flavor you're just tasting the seven different ingredients that make it up <laughs> yeah i mean this we haven't i didn't i should have mentioned this at the top of the film um but this was written by uh two people a guy named jericho stone which is the fucking most hollywood name of all time <laughs> jericho stone jericho totally stone a, oh that's a rock character Jericho Dwayne Stone. The Rock Johnson. Dude, if I ever get into porn, <laughs> when I get into porn, uh, I am going by Jericho Stone, hands down. Uh, his only writing credit uh, claim to fame is my stepmother is an alien, uh, okay. which is like so terrible. Yeah, it was on that. how did this get made and all of this. Um, they had their big put put her in a bra uh, diatribe uh, that Jason uh, and Paul exchanged. And then Charlie Haas, who wrote Gremlins 2 and Tron. Yeah. So. And that's it. <laughs> right. So uh, my, take on it, my take on it is Jericho Stone drafted 
a story that made no sense. And then they brought in Charlie Haas to do punch up, which is where you get all the zaniness uh, in the third act. And it feels more like a Dante film because that's probably the gremlins to Looney Tunes shit that's going on. And, yeah. but it's overlaid on top of this, what the fuck? And there's no real main characters and it's just a bunch of nonsense. So, uh, by the way, this, this movie, uh, I believe bombed pretty bad. I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think it did as well. Yeah. I think it's running on a budget of about 30, 13 mil. Did I see that right? Something like that. That's the number that I remember. Yeah, it was something like that. It didn't even make half its budget back. So uh, the fact that we're even here talking about it is, uh, you know, a a wonder. I will say it's on esoterica cinema (laughs) bringing you the hard hits. (laughs) Uh, I will say that the third act did punch in the face, punch me in the face with something. I just knew I knew and I couldn't put my finger on it, and I had to look it up. And it was the score. Did you? Yeah. Uh, it was the uh, Oompa Oompa Oompas. And I just was like, the Oompa Wait, Oompa, what? Oompa 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 Oompa. And I'm like, man, this fucking guy, the, the music just sounds so familiar. And I looked it up, and it's Jerry Goldsmith, who uh, has get, I mean, the guy scored everything, but uh, not the least yeah. of which is The Simpsons. And it was hey. Simpsons y. Uh, at this time, oh, totally. would have been, he would have been balls deep in Simpsons uh, classic uh, stuff going on with Conan O'Brien and all of that. I think uh, 93 would have been what season five or season four. So, uh, yeah, a lot of uh, season four is one of my favorite season. Oh, four season four of Simpsons is, is literally like all time comedic gold. Like it's yeah. the and pinnacle monorail? of comedy as an expression or an art form, like not to sound pretentious, but like, no, I don't no, think there I, is anything funnier than in that exists. than season four of the Simpsons, like in Isn't any that monorail, I'm sure it is. Yeah. It's so monorail, many classic episodes, yeah. dude. Like, I'm pretty sure it's the, you know, radioactive man. Uh, yeah. Just, I mean, it's so many, so many, so many classics. Dude. Four so, through eight is like the golden yeah, years. That's the golden that. years. Yeah. And actually nine, not nine, I think is cusp. Nine is actually really solid. Yeah. yeah give no, it's, enough credit. You're still riding it out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Eight has my favorite episode of all time, which is the Sherry Bobbins episode. I just, Oh, that's a, yeah, that's so dear to me. Yeah. I, I don't know, dude, if pressed, I mean, again, there's so many good ones, dude. I'd have to say probably either Lemon of Troy with the with the lemon tree, which I think is a season four. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With or, Shelbyville. Uh, the uh the uh the chili chili cook off episode. Yep. That's a good one too. Yeah, yeah, man. You can't mess with those. But um <laughs> <laughs> okay, Don't so know before, shit about bro- the Cuban Missile Crisis or World War Two, but god damn it. <laughs> Give this man some Simpsons history. <laughs> Listen, dude, if you listen to our trailer, which, by the way, fine, folks, I mean, I appreciate you listening for uh, to us right now, but you can also just for, you know, shits and giggles, go check out the trailer we have right now. Uh, it's on all the platforms if you haven't listened to it. Yes, we we very distinctly on that episode say that we are idiots about everything that just happened to be very smart about film specifically. And I feel like we prove that time and time again through moments like this. I can't tell you dick about the Civil War, but I can go heavily into uh, the whole Carol Co. fiasco, uh, the studio that financed Terminator 2. <laughs> well, that's why we're here. That is why we exist. Absolutely. I do want to talk. I do want to mention this real quick before before we wrap things up here, which is uh, just going back to this Jerry Goldsmith. I do have an interesting story once again from that very interesting book I read. Uh, By the way, it's called either The Big Goodbye or The Last Goodbye. 
and it's about uh, the making of Chinatown, specifically looking at Jack Nicholson, Robert Evans, and the screenwriter Robert Town. Fantastic book. That was just one of those books that, like, would not let me ignore it. Like, every time there was a free moment, I was like, do I want to watch a movie? Nah, I want to read this book. Uh, Fantastic (laughs) book. Anyway, so they talk about how... Chinatown was just a, a fiasco of things coming together and it was very difficult. They finally get a workable cut towards the end. Everything's looking good, but they had huge problems with the score. Now, Polanski being, you know, a sort of an, if not an avant-garde filmmaker, certainly left of center filmmaker, um, wanted this like very sort of like crazy avant-garde jazz score. And so he actually, interestingly enough, he hired... The person that did the temp soundtrack for The Exorcist, because Polanski had seen like a a, a rough cut before it was finished, loved this dude's score, but it was like really avant-garde. And so the studio ended up going with someone else. Polanski went back to him and said, hey, I want you to do the score for Chinatown. He didn't really want to, but he finally convinced him to. And then everybody was like, Hey, so when they finally got a working cut, everyone was like, hey, this is great, but what the fuck is up with the score, dude? The score is 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 all over the place. It's horrible. It's distracting. It's this and that. Um, it's just, you know, it's like some crazy Philip Glass thing. So Robert Evans himself actually went around Polanski and that guy's back and found Jerry Goldsmith and wow. basically was like, hey, dude, I've got this great film, but the score is going to tank it. A, can you do a score? And B, can you work with me to not mention everything, any of this to Mr. Polanski? To Polanski. <laughs> yeah. And he was weird because he was like, he was like, there was this interesting note where Jerry's like, I had zero interest in doing the project. And then Robert Evans asked me a question. He says, Jerry, what do you hear as being the main instruments in this score? And without thinking, I, Jerry Goldsmith, responded, you know, Two horns, three clarinets, a, a piano, and whatever it is, right? Like, I guess when you're a composer, you can pick the instruments that you're going to use to create these scores. Okay. And, he was like, and Jerry Goldsmith was like, and to this day, I have no idea why I responded that way or where that came from. It was just like an instant response from which I was like, well, I guess I have to do this. Wow. And so he ended up scoring Chinatown, and that's how I he had got no on. idea. What a weird I didn't either, until a week connection ago. like that I would have that we would have to be talking about Robert Evans and then Jerry Goldsmith did that and this. I don't know. Dude, and that was what I'm saying. That's what I love about the history of film, dude. It's like when you ha- when you have these microcosms and you see how incestuously connected all of these people are, you know, and how the stories sort of Cross different films and especially when you learn about where people are at in their lives and you sort of see how it inspires the decisions that they make and the work that they do and you know um, just again their personal life uh, responding to and influencing their creative life and vice versa I'm just yeah. fascinated by stuff like that dude uh, anyone that's out there listening pull up Jerry Goldsmith's IMDB roster and see uh, the the lineage of film history that's that he has I mean this guy has composed everything from Planet of the Apes to Gremlins too and everything in between it's bananas uh, how accessible he was uh, to make Chinatown and all these legendary uh, tour films but then still uh, get into like some weird sci-fi shit like Logan's Run and and then to go oh, do wow. the Simpsons I mean he's just yeah and then these everywhere. cheerful rom coms right like. Yeah, right. <laughs> he did the mummy, like 13th warrior, like all kinds of, he's just all over the map. Yeah. Range so, dude. 
Dude knows movies. Very, very much range. Yeah. So he's the film score equivalent of us, dude. Like doesn't yeah. matter genre, dude. He gets it. Takes all comers. <laughs> like Absolutely. me and the nudist, which comedy. by the way was uh, Ryan's motto in college as well. Ah, yeah, it Ayo. is. Uh, yep, <laughs> we were sounding too smart there for a minute. I had to dumb it down a shade. <laughs> Bring us well, back I mean, down I think I, I think I, I got to the, to the joke before you by saying that was uh, me in the nudist colony. So anyway, uh, <laughs> callback. We'll call it a callback in the biz. Ayo. All right, man. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up and formalize it as we do. Uh, starting off with three adjectives. Again, I'm going to continue to let you go first because uh, I appreciate the handicap. Oof. So uh, this first one doesn't seem like it holds enough weight now that we've uh, <laughs> now that we've dissected the film as we have. Because I have oddly structured, which <laughs> hindsight being what it is now that we've discussed it, uh, it's more of like, what the fuck? Because it's really <laughs> like not structured at all. Not really. <laughs> structured. Yeah, we'll just go with not structured. Yeah, because it's, there you go. What is it about? Who is it about? <laughs> What's going on? Um, end of an era is my second one. A little conjunction, nice. conjunction, junction. Conjunction, one junction. What's your function? Yeah, yeah. So this was end of an era for a couple of things for me. Uh, end of an era for me, personally. Uh, end of my innocence. I'm 13 years old at this point uh, when this movie came out. Um, this was a toss back. It kind of bookended in my own film history, but also in film history. Movies like Goonies and Burbs and Gremlins and Back to the Future and all the fun romps we were going on, throw mama from the train and, and all this fun shit that was going on in the eighties. Uh, because what happens right after this is 1994, which was the, uh, film equivalent of the Cuban missile crisis, wherein we get <laughs> Pulp Fiction and clerks and this whole, the Weinsteins come in and make Miramax and like the matrix comes out, like all this fucking shit. Um, Michael Bay and, and everything's gritty and explosions. And, uh, so I, I really do feel like, um, you know, 92 was, you know, you're getting grunge music. You got Terminator two, you got guns and roses kind of bookending hair metal and all of that. Uh, and so the, the whole nation was trying to come to terms with, Reagan's not here anymore. I really can narrow it down to that. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then we get Bill Clinton, who's playing a saxophone and banging chicks. And we're like, <laughs> oh, this is what we're up to. Got it. This is who we are. And uh, yeah, that gave us. Yeah, but the economy became... was humming. Yeah. I mean, it gave us the rest of the 90s. And so this was end of an era for me and film history. It's really 93 was a weird time. Uh, and then yeah. you've got uh, Timely, which. The, you know, one thing I think you and I both do agree uh, on about this film is, again, um, seeing the Cuban Missile Crisis in this time in history and how people reacted to it and how that just is a direct overlay to COVID-19 and our own personal quarantine. Even the woke parents of uh, Lisa Jacob and, and how they yeah. were like, you know, so just liberal and free spirited and all of that. Um and teaching the kids how to think like you could see the kids in the school reacting directly uh, based on how the parents were. And you saw both sides of that and and how it yeah. mirrored it. And uh, I think we're seeing that right now uh, in our own world. Uh, and uh, so kids teach your children well, as Crosby, Stills and Nash said something like that once. <laughs> uh, Jason, how about you, buddy? All right, so for me, the first one I will say is this is a buoyant film, and that's ultimately like a large 
part of what kept me from disliking this film, right? Is it's just, it's got an energy, it's got a spirit, even though it's kind of touching on what could be considered some heavier, heavier material, it's still doing so in a lighter way. Um, it's, it's got that sort of, you know, nostalgic look at the past and everything that goes along with that. The rose colored glasses approach to cinema, if not, you know, what was going on around it at the time. And that's kind of like, again, one of the things that kept me from disliking the film because I didn't dislike the film. It was okay. I didn't love it, but, um, yeah, it's just one of those. And then kind of, uh, in keeping with that, my second adjective, which is earnest. And, and it's just, it was such an, it was such an honest and innocent film, you know, and it, and it loved its subject matter. It loves schlocky horror movies. Like that just comes mm-hmm. through with everything that they do. It reminded me of, it's like the cinematic equivalent of your friend's dog. That's just too big for its own good. And it still thinks it's a puppy and it's got such a sweet energy and it's rambunctious and it wants to play, but it just runs through your house at a mile a minute. It's got a three foot tail that knocks over all of your expensive shit. And like you love its energy and spirit, but God damn it, you're destroying my house at the same time. So, you know, and, and not that there's anything destructive about the film, but just from that standpoint of like, I really like your earnest, your earnestness, your honesty, your spirit, your innocence, but there's a lot of problems with what you're doing right now that I can't yeah. ignore, you know? No, yeah. And that's really kind of where I fin. And then to wrap that up, I have my third adjective is confused. And I think that was just part of it is it didn't know the film that it wanted to be, you know, it, it knew parts of what it wanted, but it didn't know how to bring it all together. And you sort of see it be constantly at odds with trying to find a footing, trying to find some sort of storyline to hang that main, you know, through point on. And it's trying it with the kids and it's trying it with the brothers and it's trying it with the Lisa Jacob character. And it's trying it with the, you know, the other, the other, the blonde chick and the dude sure. and, and then the Harvey. And so it, Even again, the tone. it was just, the yeah, tone of the yeah, film, which it, shift randomly is like, very, very strange. Yeah, it goes from cartoon to serious and back again. And and again, mm-hmm. just I <laughs> I would say Joe Dante is also confused as to the level of acceptability in age differences in films like this. <laughs> <laughs> so just 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 again, a, a lot of cool stuff to like, but just small soldiers didn't really indeed. know how to bring it. Hey, bring it on, bring it all together. So I'm going to go ahead and give us a formal star rating before you give your gray rating. And that is going to be three and a quarter stars out of five. It was a three star movie for me in terms of just a lot of stuff that I liked just as much stuff as I didn't. But I had to give it that little extra star just because, again, it's such a sweet film and it wears its heart on its sleeve. And it's like, yep. ah, you know, that's a good he's a good kid, even though he gets into trouble every now and then or doesn't quite know where he's going in life. Right. And that was very much kind of how I felt about this. So three and a quarter stars for me. What you got for grade rating, buddy? I'm giving this one right in the same uh, wheelhouse as you, um, which is weird because, you know, we, we did start off kind of disagreeing about how we felt about this. <laughs> but I'm, I'm giving this B movie a B, and it is, in fact, Good. a B movie. So That's cool. Yeah. I for the, all the same that. reasons you said. Uh, I thought that this is a, uh, a terrible, a wonderfully terrible film. It's a bad movie <laughs> that I just really enjoyed. And uh, so yeah. maybe chalk it up as guilty pleasure. Yeah, I suppose. 
I don't think you need to feel guilty for liking it, dude. There's, That's fair. It's got. A, I mean, it's it's it is kind it's of a cult charm. film. Like it's got a it's got one of those like Scream Factory two disc Blu-ray special editions. So there's obviously what? an audience out there for it. Yeah. No, I know it's crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like it's kind of like how I got that Arrow double uh, two disc Blu-ray of society the other day <laughs> like it's not a film that should have a two or the you know the special edition of Dagon that I picked up right yeah, with the yeah. multiple audio commentaries it's just these little cult films and I think I think the thing is that people they're they're so they're so niche and they're so cult and they're so that they become very inexpensive, right? Yeah. And so the thing is, if you're a company, like, you know, Criterion has to license their films. And I think that's one thing that they did really well is they're like, oh, by licensing small art house films and foreign cinema, like, we'll get those for pennies on the dollar, right? Um, and I think that's why, you know, the larger films, your, you know, Do the Right Thing special editions and Silence of the Lambs, they pro- those are much further and fewer between because I'm sure they cost them much more. But yeah, but I think these, you know, Arrow and... Uh, Anchor Bay, all these different companies, they just go around and find these little cult films that they can pick up for cheap. And, you know, they're able to sell, you know, because it's a dedicated audience, you know, there's the people that do love those movies will pay 20, 30, 35, up to $40 for those Blu-rays. So, you know, they're making a lot of profit, I think, per, but either way. Yeah. Uh, pretty crazy. In all fairness, I, I stand by my opinion that they literally had to print that disc, they, they had to make that disc of Dagon for you. Like, they do it on a per <laughs> When you click mine, they're Nobody like, you got another one. That is just for me. <laughs> Took out a blank <laughs> off the spindle and put it in his CD burner off his Dell computer. <laughs> I had wondered why the UPC was 000003. Yeah. kind of interesting. You're the third one. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our review of Matinee. Hopefully you enjoyed our discussion, if not the film itself. You should know what you're getting into if you haven't seen it. So go ahead and check it out if you like, based on what you heard here today. We are going to go ahead and move on to selecting next week's film. But before that, a little bit of business here. So... Ooh, do want to let you know business <laughs> as always we do have the social media accounts that you can go ahead and hit us up with your follows and communicate with us guys we want to hear from you do you like what we're doing here do you want to see some new films on the uh, next season three list are you having a particularly good crepe or muffin you, you need to tell somebody about it we love to hear from you we've got a couple different options we've got esoterica cinema on both twitter as well as instagram and then we are also esoterica cinema at gmail.com. So you can go ahead and hit us up there. Ryan is available at the Ryan Siebold, I think. On most yeah, of your on things. Twitter. And Ryan yeah, underscore Siebold on Instagram because I never planned on people knowing who I am. So. <laughs> very, very loud. Uh, <laughs> they say dress wait, for the occasion. I did none of that. Yeah. And then I'm, uh, well, I mean, hey, I'm Jason Aberrant on both Instagram and uh, the. Right. Email and Twitter as well. And in case anybody wants to know why, I'm not going to tell you. But you can ask me, and I'll be happy to tell you on any of these different platforms. Ask Oterica Cinema. That'll be our new (laughs) (laughs) Q&A. Absolutely. So once again, we encourage you guys to check us out. Uh, If you are listening to us and you haven't subscribed, please do so. We really appreciate those follows and subs. Helps us out with the numbers and the rankings and the metrics and all that crap that you guys don't care about. We also have a very nice website. 
It's got our season two master list on there that you can download and follow along at the end of the episodes when we pull these films. It's got the animatics. It's got a little description about what we do. It's got links to the web player in case anybody knows. Um, we do have a really awesome web player that breaks down, separates all of the episodes from the bonus episodes to the comedy sketches. And so, yeah, bunch of different ways that you can hear us. And of course, we are doing a giveaway this month. That's right. It is our very first giveaway contest. Yeah, so we're having a contest right now. All you need to do to enter is really easy, guys. Just leave us a review on any of the platforms. We do prefer Apple Podcasts, um, but any, you know, Podchaser, Good Pods, any of those things, totally acceptable. And then just email or send us through Twitter a screenshot of the review itself. That's going to enter you into a raffle where at the end of the month, we're going to pull a name. And we're going to give out $50 cash, no questions asked, 50 bucks. to whoever we pull. And here's the thing. You don't even need to leave us a five-star review to be entered. All you have to do is just leave us a review with this month. Again, we're going to go ahead and pull it at the end of the month. Send us that screenshot to esotericacinema at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter, esotericacinema. Send it to us there. You're in. And then at the end of the month, you might get $50, no questions asked. And then you can stop listening to us. You can even play us for that. Just, yeah, clock in and tell us we're trash and peace out and come get 50 bucks. <laughs> Looking at you, all my ex-girlfriends. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So, yeah, uh, again, trying to do some things here this, this year. Hopefully you guys are digging it. Um, but, yeah, so we're doing that giveaway. Make sure to keep in touch with us when you do leave us that review. And with all of that business out of the way, Ryan, it is time to choose our next film to look at. So we are going back again. Screw Google. Hey, kept us in, in, in genre for way too long. We are back to our random.org, true random number generator. And that's what we're doing. So... We have got, once again, 200 films that we're going through. We have watched, geez, Ryan, what was this? Three, six, I think that was seven. I think this is a matinee of seven. I think we're on eight, if, I, if my math is correct. So, sure. <laughs> that works. Let's go ahead and let's see what we've got here. All right. So, we got 59 that came up as our random number through uh, random.org true number generator. Going to go over here, scroll down a list. All right. Hey, so, uh, Ryan, we are definitely out of the uh, genre uh, area with this one. We are going back to uh, something of a uh, prestige picture. It's 1962's Harakiri. It's a, a Japanese film, I believe. Uh, I know it is a, definitely a part of the Criterion Collection. Uh, Ryan, do you have a description for us on that? I do. From 1962, when a ronin requesting seppuku at a federal lord's palace is told of the brutal suicide of another ronin who, previ who previously visited, he reveals how their paths are intertwined, and in doing so, challenges the clan's integrity. Now, this sounds a lot like Shangy uh, uh, Mu's um, uh, hero that we watched last season. And, Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. By description alone, that's what I'm going to go with. But uh, yeah, this is a Kobayashi film, uh, Masaki Kobayashi. And, and uh, so we will I haven't we haven't done a, a foreign film in, in a while. And it's so, been a little bit. You, we did a bunch of them season one. I mean, unless you want to count New Zealand really dead alive. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, and Japan's Grave of the Fireflies. So now Grave that we of the Fireflies. Out loud, actually, yeah. 
Touche. Touche. Yeah, we haven't done one since last fucking episode. <laughs> it's been forever. <laughs> right, right, yeah. I'm talking about, like, some serious live-action bullshit. And uh, so, yeah. you know. To me, like, I'm, I'm kind of getting, like, heavy Kurosawa vibes from this one, actually. Absolutely. I kind of very much expect it to feel like a Kurosawa film. I'm uh, going to keep it on brand here and say I am playing the pants off of uh, Ghosts of Tsushima as well um, on PlayStation nice. 4 right now in my downtime, which I don't have any of. But when I do, uh, I'm still playing that. So this is going to go hand in hand with uh, some Ronin and Samurai stuff. We shall see. Looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to it, too. This is actually one of those films that I've had on my list for a really, really long time that I actually haven't like really researched, so I don't know too much about it. I just know it's incredibly highly regarded you know very much considered a classic in japanese cinema so really sure. looking forward to getting into harakiri Harakiri. I, I apologize i was gonna say i apologize if i butchered that pronunciation by now if you listen to us you know that for all the foreign films we look at we're horrible at producing or rather pronouncing the names of the films and the people that make them but harakiri 1962 is the next film we will be looking at make sure to go ahead and give it a watch so that you can be all prepared to join us Next time on Esoterica Cinema. Hora! Terra! Diarrhea! These are words used by any and all who have borne witness to the abomination you are about to experience. The Motion Picture Association of America requires us to warn you that any reactions you may experience from this advertisement are the responsibility of you and you alone. Just days prior to this recording, mild-mannered podcast host Ryan Seabold fell victim to a horrible mutation, previously thought to only exist in children's comic books. He's going to be okay, right, Doctor? Isn't there a cure? I'm afraid we're in uncharted territory, Susan. You see, Ryan was laying face down, naked as a jaybird, sunbathing on the bare ground, when his penis accidentally found its way into an anthill. After years of polluted water seeped into the soil there, the ants became radioactive. After being bitten, Ryan began to change in a way science has never seen before. Doctor, we haven't consummated our relationship yet, and, well, was it a large anthill? Because if he fit into a small one, well, I just don't know what I'll do. Don't worry, Susan. He's only half ant. He can still be half sugar daddy. He might not fit in with society, but he should be just fine in sex. I'm just worried, Doctor. I've never had a male ant before. Only uncles. A horror beyond belief! Ryan goes into hiding as his body becomes more grotesque than anyone could have ever imagined! Doctor, how can we not find him? He could be anywhere! I'm afraid there isn't much we can do, Susan. You see, he lives in Florida and he managed to put on a camouflage hat from the Bass Pro Shop. He's completely cloaked from any and all tracking devices we have at our disposal. He simply can't be seen. But Doctor, he's a giant monster. How has nobody reported anything? Have you been to Florida, Susan? They all act like monsters there. Wait, of course, the COVID vaccine. Yes, Doctor? He was vaccinated. We can track Ryan down based on the microchip the government placed inside the COVID vaccine. It's common knowledge. Only 100 people took the vaccine in Florida, so it should be very easy to find him. We'll raid Florida immediately. Oh, Doctor. Will he be okay, Doctor? There's a slim chance this isn't permanent. 
If we can get him the antibodies, I anticipate that we could bring these antics to an end. But we must act quickly, before he does something drastic like commit insecticide. But Doctor, what if you can't stop him? I'm afraid we'll have to use our greatest weapon. A giant shoe! So pour a drink and take a day off work to prepare yourself for the terrifying spectacle that is... Riant! Pull yourself together, Susan. His face? It's... it's horrible! Susan, I've only changed from the waist down. My face is still the same. I know. Bryant! He's crawling his way into a theater near you, and he's got a thorax to grind. From the visionary minds at Aberrant Literature comes a short fiction collection unlike any other. Aberrant Tales, bursting at the seams with stories of creativity, excitement, and wonder. Aberrant Tales takes the very best in modern science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and weaves them into one thrilling eclectic package. Featuring the works of Ashton McCauley, M.T. Roberts, Daniel Curland, and Jason Peters, Aberrant Tales is available today in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions. Online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.